Welcome to Kolisha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kolisha. I am so excited this week to be joined by someone who is an incredible advocate for the from community, especially from women, uh, Dr. Elisa Minkin, who is my very first repeat guest. I interviewed Dr. Elisa Minkin, um, probably going back over a year now on a different topic, but she has been doing so much incredible work since that time. So um, today I sort of wanted to discuss some new things with her and talk about the work that she's been doing. So Dr. Minkin is a general pediatrician. She works and lives in Long Island and she obtained her MD from New York University School of Medicine. She completed her pediatric residency at Brookdale University Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. She grew up in New Jersey and now she lives on Long Island. She's a mom of six children and she does incredible advocacy for the from community, especially as a member of the Preventative Health Task Force for the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, um, otherwise and more conveniently known as JOMA. Welcome, Dr. Minkin. Thank you so much for having me a second time. I am I so honored. It's such an honor to talk to you because you're like such a role model and such an inspiration for everything that you're doing. So you. Dr. Minkin, tell me a little bit um, about you and about your background um, and sort of how you got into this advocacy role. I'm sure you have just like endless amounts of free time being a oh, mom sure. and a pediatrician. <laughs> <laughs> and this is my passion and I do, I do put a lot of time into it. I first want to thank you for being the inspiration for the podcast that I do. I did not even know what a podcast was. I was like, what's a pod and what are we casting? <laughs> I did not know. So you, you are my inspiration and I love your podcast and it's an oh, incredible honor to be on for the second time. And I'm much calmer this time. I remember the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so nervous. So thank you. So actually, we got to know each other during the measles outbreak. And we were both fighting the um, anti-vaccine, you know, misinformation that was going on then. And that's really how I got started in what I'm doing now for JOMA. Um, I have a daughter on the autism spectrum. I talk about her all the time. She is the source of my passion for good information, not, not just about vaccines, by the way, but about medical information in general and for you know help with advocacy. So that's my overall passion as the parent of, of a young adults on the autism spectrum. Um, but during the measles outbreak, there was misinformation that was actually in a local Jewish paper and I was horrified. And I said, we have to make good information accessible. And so, we started working together with Lima Marcus and her MS group. And I am a super big fan of Lima, so much so that I have a t-shirt that says Lima Marcus's greatest fan. <laughs> I <funny>. do. <laughs> um, and at the same time, an organization, Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association known as JOMA, not JALMA by the way, created for um, women in medicine, either training to be a medicine or, or um, physicians already. And they were doing a campaign during the measles outbreak to offer free measles MMR vaccines. Now I was already working with, with Blima and already well aware of the, you know, the anti-vaccine movement. Um, and I knew that it wasn't really so much that people were not having access to the vaccine, but were hesitant about it or against it. Um, and yet I wanted to do anything I could, so I joined. And what happened was people were calling up our so-called hotline for access to the vaccine and saying, where is the talks? Because in the more Haredi Hasidish world, they often turn to information lines or hotlines as they call them for information. And so we pivoted and now we have um, an information line. And then I saw you making a podcast and I said, okay, I can do this too. <laughs> and now we have a podcast as well which I absolutely love. And I've shared your podcast numerous times because you cover such a broad range of topics. And actually just yesterday, someone um, was saying she would love to hear some more information about um, possibly giving the COVID vaccine to her children. And she doesn't know enough yet. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I have a good source for you. And I Aww. just sent her the link to your podcast because 
you just recently did an interview on that topic, but there's such a huge range of topics that you cover and so many fascinating guests. And I love the fact that most of them are from women who, you know, they're, they're busy people. They have incredibly busy lives. Most of them are doctors or other sorts of healthcare professionals. And I love being able to see and hear from them what they're doing and how they're able to do all of that, because it's an incredible challenge to balance all of, all of the demands of being a from woman. Most of them have families. Um, and on top of that, they are just so wise and so brilliant and um, so capable doing so, so much. Um, sometimes I feel like, gosh, I'm really not doing enough myself. Oh, stop. Um, little kids. It's a different <laughs> phase of life. It's a different phase of life. Yeah, but it's just yourself. incredible to hear. And I, I really, really enjoy listening. And I'm so like, grateful for what you're doing. And you mentioned, you know, the, the misinformation when it came to the measles. Um, what have you found since then? You know, obviously, that was a huge thing going back, uh, probably two years ago now, right? Mm-hmm. And we it's like a distant memory now. Um, since that time, obviously, we've had COVID, we've had so much else to deal with, too. Like you said, you've had to pivot platforms from hotlines to podcasts and things like that. And, and you've also had to pivot the direction you were going with what subjects you were going to tackle. Um, you've really been on the forefront of this. So how has that been going? So I think that Joma has been amazing because not only do we have a podcast, but we've also hosted actually a number of, you know, so-called town hall webinars with an amazing array of experts. And everyone is doing this just to get information out. No one is doing this for money, which is really, really amazing that so many people are willing to give of their time and energy just to get information out. Um, We've had written materials, we've had advertisements, um, so we've, we're really doing a lot to get the word out there, and I'm really proud to be part of it, and I'm proud to be part of an amazing group of, of women professionals who are working really hard, like I said, just to get good information out. There's no other incentive or motivation here. There's no financial incentive, which is really important for people to understand. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You know, there, like you said, there's no financial incentive, but I feel like um, there's there's almost an incentive for themselves of, of creating more trust and, and mm-hmm. getting more information out. It's an incentive for them in their own work in a way, because not having that information out there is so harmful and so right. damaging. Mm-hmm. We see what misinformation does. And, you know, as a healthcare provider myself, it's, it's extremely frustrating to deal with people who have been giving, given bad information. I get asked just, you know, by community members, family members, oh, have you ever heard this theory? Can mm-hmm. you debunk this or that, you know? And I wish there was more good information out there, you know, the kind that you're giving and doing. And I almost feel like I would also dedicate some of my time for that just so that I don't have to deal with the fallout of the bad information you know, and, and that constant like aggravation of, oh, is it true that, you know, peanut allergies are caused by vaccines because there's peanut right. oil in vaccines? Someone just asked me that no, recently. No, no. <laughs> it took like a really quick, I said, I don't know, I've never heard of this. It's not my expertise, but I looked it up online really briefly. And there was a very straight up article saying that that's not the case because some vaccines were tested with peanut a long, long time ago, and there's absolutely no peanut oil in vaccines, and there hasn't been for decades. So I was like, you know, there's obviously been some information floating around about that, a nugget of truth that got mm. turned into something right. a lot, you know, more scary sounding, mm-hmm. but it's absolutely not true anymore. And I'm like, I wish I didn't have to waste my time trying to convince people that things they're hearing aren't true. So you know, I understand why they want to give of their time so badly because there's the, right. just this mm-hmm. need to get good information out there to people. It's such a such a pressing need. Right. We we want our our patients to be empowered, right? Knowledge is power, and it's it's good knowledge. And I think what's changed since the measles outbreak is the amount of misinformation and disinformation during the pandemic has skyrocketed, and a lot of it is almost indistinguishable from correct information. 
they're using the same scientific techniques. There's plenty of doctors and scientists who, I don't wanna say anti-vaccine, but what they're doing is being used by the anti-vaccine movement to prove their point. How are you supposed to know what to believe, who to believe and what to believe? Right. And not just that, but the messaging during COVID, things were very back and forth, twisted, you know, mm -hmm. in the beginning, right. we really didn't have any information. The brand new disease literally mm -hmm. has never been around before. No one has ever seen this before. So as, as the healthcare professionals and providers, we were scrambling ourselves to try to understand what this was. And yes, the information definitely changed and evolved. The recommendations changed and evolved for the better, thank God, um, mm. because the beginning was just horrific. Mm. But I think that unfortunately created so much mistrust because mm -hmm. people were like, well, we have so much trust in doctors up till now and look at them scrambling, no idea what they're doing. How am I ever going to trust these people? It, I think that created such a challenge. It's true. And I think also at the beginning when it was so chaotic and you can speak to this as someone who worked as a nurse in a hospital during this time, I'm an outpatient pediatrician, so I don't have the same experience. Um, families weren't allowed in. So they couldn't see what was going on. And there's a whole narrative that they didn't die because of COVID, they died because they weren't treated properly. And I think this was, you know, part of that, what happened in the vacuum of, of not, you know, being there, not seeing it for themselves. I think people believe what they see with their own eyes. And when they don't see with their own eyes, they can create different narratives. Yeah. And, and like you said, then there's, there's this vacuum that's being filled for someone who might not have thought of that. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, it was really broken that their family member passed away from COVID and they couldn't be there. It's such an absolutely heart wrenching situation. Mm -hmm. And then someone comes along and goes, well, did you hear this? Did you hear the belt, the neglect? Did you hear about whatever it may be? And then they're very easily in an emotional state can latch onto that and just either just take, you know, latch onto that for themselves or become an advocate for that right. line of, of thinking um, and sort of grow that, that, that mentality or yeah. yeah. And influence other people to think that way too. You know, that, that was such a huge issue for me because I honestly did not see that sort of neglect or mistreatment no. of patients mm -hmm. myself. And I'm, it's not to say it couldn't have happened elsewhere. I was only in one hospital. Um, but it was very hard for me to see people that I knew personally um, latch on to this and mm -hmm. start blaming doctors, nurses, you know, people were just at such a loss of what to do. Um, and it's very easy to just try to find someone to blame out. I guess it makes people feel a little better to be able to do that. But people that I, I knew closely were saying, oh, I don't believe you. You know, a Hatsala member said that they're killing people. And I said, I work in the hospital. I, right. that's not the case. Like I have not seen anything like that. I know nurses from across the country and world really, because I'm part of a Jewish nurses association. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them actually formed little groups of, of, from providers to go in and check on from patients and, mm -hmm. and in the most awful situation, say detoy with them because the, the families couldn't be there. And I heard from from providers from across different hospitals, especially one specific hospital that kept coming up. Um, and I asked people who worked there, like, is this, is this really going on? And they said, no, we're going around the hospital in our free time coming in on our days off because we're allowed in as hospital staff while families are not. And we have not seen any of this. Um, so much so it bothered me so much that I actually put out a WhatsApp video. I remember, um, it was awesome. Yeah, I didn't want to identify myself in it. <laughs> so I was wearing a mask. So in, if anybody saw it, it was me. Um, <laughs> That's brave of you. <laughs> I know. It went a little viral, like a mild flu, not like COVID though. Right. But um, no, it, it was just absolutely horrendous. And, and I can see how that sort of lack of trust snowballed. And, and you are really dealing with the fallout of that. No, we are. And I say that this is like prime time for anti-vaxxers to get their misinformation out because I say what they're fertilizing their misinformation with is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That's what they like to, you know, use to get people to buy into their misinformation. We have so much of that inherent in what's going on right now, right? 
I mean, we have a new vaccine using new technology, which has been working amazingly well and being more effective and safer than we hoped for, right? But the anti-vaccine world was building distrust of it before it even existed. So I had families coming into the office crying, but my child's gonna be mandated to have the COVID vaccine. And I'm like, there is no COVID vaccine. I didn't even think there would be one this fast. Right, but the very speed again is scaring some people. And it's the fear to me is understandable, but the fear is what the overall anti-vaccine movement is using to build their adherence. And that makes me crazy, by the way. <laughs> no, I, I completely understand. You know, it makes me crazy too, but you are so much more involved in it and you're dealing with the fallout. You know, the, the crazy thing is that when someone hears a piece of information, they may not have a reason to doubt it. They, they may just assume it's true, right? Most people assume something sounds, sounds plausible, then it's true. Then to go and try to reverse that is so much more difficult, right. you know? Right. They've mm -hmm. already heard this vaccine might be dangerous or, you know, in some cases, the, the statements are made very strongly. This vaccine is dangerous. It causes X, Y, Z, run mm -hmm. away from it. Don't ever give it to your children. Now that fear is, you know, is just part of what they associate with the vaccine. Now you go try to reverse that. Right. How frustrating. Right, right. That's what Dr. Paul Offit said. It's easier to scare people than unscare people. A hundred percent. And by the way, it's easier to give misinformation than it is to debunk it. There's this asymmetry principle. <laughs> Has not a nice term to us. I'm not going to say the misinformation <laughs> asymmetry principle. It's got some long name too, Brandolini or something like that. And the idea is that it takes at least 10 times the effort to debunk misinformation than to give it. Wow. So, yeah, that's one reason why this, they're always saying, have a debate, have a debate. And they'll say, you know, here's some anti vaxxer. He's happy to debate the world's top expert. And it is really an asymmetric situation. For, for many reasons, um, but even just from the perspective of all they have to do is throw a bunch of supposed studies and all this misinformation and just try to debunk that. You'd be on the first thing and everybody's eyes are gonna be rolling back in their head. It's really tedious to pull apart the threads of that. And like you said before, it often starts from a piece of true information. So if you check that piece of true information, well, aha, they're right. You know, the vaccines were made in peanut oil at some point, right? That's where that came from. That was the nugget that you were talking something about. Something like that. It was studied with peanut oil, but like decades ago. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this antibody dependent enhancement. They're throwing that term around, you know, in the, in the world of, of anti-vaxxers and people who've been following that misinformation. Um, and what they start talking about is that there was the original SARS vaccines had some um, adverse effect and the animals um, were dying from it. And so they had to halt the studies. And there was fear that this COVID vaccine would also have that same problem, but it didn't come to fruition. And they did have animal studies and the animals were fine. And so the narrative is, oh, they didn't even bother this time with the animal studies, which is not true. And that's how they spread that piece of misinformation. And just to clarify, when you say the SARS vaccine, you mean what we were seeing about 10 years ago, not right. this current COVID. SARS-1, not SARS-CoV-2. Right, right. And Which by the way, the Ed COVID Nirenberg, I just want to give a shout out to Ed Nirenberg. Do you know who he is? I've heard of him. Tell me more. So Ed Nirenberg is amazing. He is, I believe, a Cornell chemistry or biology or my, some science graduate. Um, and he has been in the um, anti-vaccine misinformation debunking world for a while. He just, he puts out incredibly detailed scientific rebuttals. And so if anybody wants to learn more about antibody dependent enhancement, I have referred people to his um, um, blog, which is called Deplatform Disease. He named it that because he would love to deplatform disease itself, not <laughs> deplatform information or misinformation. Um, and he's also on Instagram, Ed Nirenberg Deplatform Disease. So that is one great resource. And by the way, I'm just gonna mention another because you know we could talk forever and there's so much misinformation. And if somebody listens to this and says, but I don't know about a specific piece of information, where can I go? Um, you know, we're, we're talking about some of it with Joma, but like I said, it's so extensive. There's no way to cover all of the misinformation. It's um, proliferating like crazy. Um, so there's also Vaxopedia, which is um, written by Vince Ionelli, who is a pediatrician. 
And that's kind of like the Wikipedia vaccine misinformation. So those are two of my favorite sources. Good, thank you so much for sharing those because you know I think it's important for people to have resources, but at the same time, you know, people's lives are so busy. They're so involved in so mm -hmm. many different things. Just, you know, their, their families alone, getting through the day, doing whatever they have to do. And then they mm -hmm. get a text or they go onto Instagram where they see something. And, and what, what's so like frustrating and harmful is that we get these like little nuggets of information mm -hmm. in a meme or, mm -hmm. you know, someone write, you know, does a little Instagram story of, oh, I heard a terrible story, blah, blah, blah. And then it's out there and who knows how many people have seen it, right? It, and there's no nuance. There's no ability to like really educate someone on a platform like that. And I feel like that also is such a huge driver of this. And, you know, I, I just recently did a talk with someone else about the news and it's the same idea when you talk about like the Israel Gaza conflict, right? And mm -hmm. it, it exists in so many different ways in, in the world now. You see a little meme, a little mm -hmm. nugget, someone who calls themselves an influencer, a celebrity, mm -hmm. or this or that, and they have no expertise on the topic and they put something out and it's like fear mongering, even though for them, it's like, you know, they want to gain more followers or they want to engage with their whatever. And they have no idea how damaging this sort of behavior is. It's, it's actually quite scary. Mm -hmm. No, it really, really is. And they're using the same type of scientific techniques. Like I said before, there's another great blogger. His name is um, Dr. David Gorski. Actually planning on interviewing him soon today. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for respectful insolence. Um, so he has that blog and he's also the manager of science-based medicine, which is a science skeptic site with multiple writers. And interestingly, by the way, he was started out by debunking Holocaust denialism. Wow, interesting. He's not Jewish. Yeah. Oh, he's not Jewish? No. Wow, what a fascinating yeah. topic for him yeah. to start out covering. Yeah. So he, no, because he saw the lies behind it, and you know, I I'm like that too. I I'm so against lies. Not everybody um, has the same passion for like deep dive into the truth. I think you know different people function differently. A lot of people are just busy and they're just scared, right? So that's why this inf misinformation is so so dangerous because it's everywhere. It's so prevalent. We're really busy. And we don't necessarily have the knowledge to know what's true and what's not true. And like I said, they are using the exact same type of visualization, the exact same type of studies or distorting you know, existing studies. So in David Gorski, Dr. Gorski had a recent post on an article where they studied the social media posts of anti-maskers and anti-masking movement overlaps a lot with the anti-vaccine movement. Mm -hmm. it, I don't remember the name of the study, but if you look on Respectful Insolence and you look at his post, it's really, really interesting. And I think one thing I find fascinating about it, and I find this fascinating personally as somebody who's in, you know, trying to talk to people um, about this, some people who are very skeptical, um, is that a lot of people are very thoughtful who are skeptics. You know, they'll say, I'm not anti-vaccine, but, and they may really not be, you know, completely opposed to vaccines. They may just be skeptical and not know what to believe. And a lot of times they have, you know, very thoughtful reasons for this. And so that's why it's so important to get good information out there. And I think that's becoming more and more common because we're inundated with information. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be mm -hmm. if you wanted information, you had to read a book or the newspaper or something. Mm -hmm. And now like the information is literally in the palm of our hands. Who doesn't right. have access to that? And you're inundated with so much information, like you said, some of it's true, some of it's lies, some of it contradicts each other. And how confusing is that, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it, I think it, it just winds up creating so much confusion. And and it's, it's in a way, it's a good thing that we have people thinking more because you don't mm -hmm. just want people blindly following. But then right. on the other hand, there's a lot to deal with when someone gets sucked into, you know, the, the wrong uh, sort of information. Um, which, which brings me to an interesting topic because you are, of course, mostly focused um, in the Orthodox community and I think kind of the subset of the more Haredi community that, that doesn't necessarily have the same kind of access. Like you said, you're doing a lot of um, publishing your talks on hotlines and this is mostly for people that don't have um, uh, internet or, or, you know, the social media platforms that they can follow you on. So Tell me a little bit about that. Like, what is, what's the challenge um, 
when it comes to specifically health education in the from community, is it different than other communities? Are you finding more skepticism or less or, or you know, and what's your approach? Is it any different than you would for someone outside of our community? It's interesting that you say that because I find that we're more alike than different, first of all. And I use my podcast, I share it with my families that are not Jewish as well. I really think that the misinformation is, you know, almost identical. The only difference is that I feel that we, and I say we as Orthodox Jews, because I think we're all susceptible. Um, I think there's a greater susceptibility in the more Haredi Hasidic community for a number of reasons. Um, but we're more susceptible because we were hit really, really hard in the beginning. And I think we faced some anti-Semitism at, from the, pub, not the public health, but from politically, like in, for example, with the zoning. So I think that there is more distrust, more skepticism. I don't think this is specific to Haredi Hasidish, but just statistically, in terms of how hard we were hit, in terms of say, what percentage have had COVID, from what we know, um, the more Haredi Hasidish communities have had more COVID. They were hit harder in the beginning for obvious reasons. Um, and so I think they've had a different experience. I think that they saw that their rates went up and then their rates went down and they stopped wearing masks, they stopped doing the distancing and it didn't seem to matter much. And then the public health was saying, you know, wear a mask, do this, or you're going to see, a, uh, you know, a spike, and then they didn't. And so I think their experience has been different. I wish that we could have done um, community-specific messaging better. I wish that we could be treating people who've had COVID differently than people who haven't, right? Because from what we know so far, immunity looks pretty robust from an illness. It doesn't mean 100% you can't get it again. We, you definitely can get it again. That is a risk. You can get it severely again. Um, and I do believe that people who've had COVID should be vaccinated, and I'm not saying that, but we have to be honest and transparent. And when you don't have that, and when you have mixed messaging, especially if you feel you're being targeted, of course, you're gonna have even less trust. So then you're gonna be more, more susceptible. And the anti-vaccine movement has always targeted the more vulnerable populations. And right. so our population is more vulnerable and they have been specifically targeted by the larger anti-vaccine movement. What do you mean when you say that? I, I've been very curious about this. You know, I've seen the, the anti-vax actually just got my, my neighborhood just got a mailing the other day with some really awful flyers. I think you saw them too. Mm -hmm. I got them. <laughs> I got yeah, them. I got it. <laughs> a lot of people did. I mean, just the kind of scary language that's used, the blame, the, the feeling of, you know, um, we're going to be, God forbid, you know, responsible for killing our children. Like just this, it says, I'm like, mommy, Tati, why did you give me the vaccine? Right. And, uh, and now I can't have babies or something like just like awful kind of things um, written in there with so much horrifying, um, scary misinformation. And it does feel like we're being targeted. And I mm -hmm. am so curious to know who is behind this and why, because uh, what is what is the goal? I mean, just to scare people like there, there's got to be a deeper reason that someone would be doing this. Okay, so first of all, I did a, a whole um podcast and Instagram live, by the way, with Dr. Dorit Rubenstein-Reese, who is a lawyer who specializes in vaccines and the anti-vaccine movement. And what she said that really put it in, in proper perspective for me is that the larger group of people who are anti-vaccine are grassroots activists. And these grassroots activists have no evil intention whatsoever. They believe with every fiber in their body that the vaccines are dangerous and that they're more dangerous than the disease. They do, and that's who I think is putting this out. However, the funding, where the funding comes from, and again, we don't know, it could be somebody who's grassroots activists who are just wealthy and they're putting their money into it. But when I say targeted by the anti-vaccine movement, I'm not talking about the grassroots activists. I'm talking about leaders in the anti-vaccine movement. And this has been the history you know, from the beginning. Like if you look at the measles outbreak, um, Andrew Wakefield, for example, who had that, you know, retracted Lancet article, who was, whose uh, medical license, I think, was taken away from him for his fraudulent study showing a connection between autism and the MMR, for which there is no connection, um, went out to Minnesota, where there was a community of Somali refugees, and 
built up fear, uncertainty and data about the measles vaccine in this very vulnerable community. And afterwards there was a measles outbreak. And he also came, I think he was actually remotely brought in during the measles outbreak. Remember that in Muncie where we went, yeah. that's where we went together and drove in the car together and I got that's to be right. friends with you. Yeah, <laughs> so that was them you know, getting involved. There were other leaders also and it's the same thing now. There have been events where the people brought in to speak were not grassroots activists, they were leaders. And again, I don't really like to focus on specific names. I try hard not to um, point out specific people because it's, I think, more effective to point out misinformation than to, you know, just complain about specific people. Or, or give attention to, yeah. Um, it's easy to find out. Just go on Vaxopedia and <laughs> you'll see all the names. No, but the question is then the, this leadership, are they responsible for giving the grassroots activists this, this bad information and sort of um, creating this following of people who believe that vaccines are so, so damaging and so harmful? Um, is it like a direct correlation between the leadership and the activists? Yes. Yes, they're the ones who are supplying the information. The grassroots activists are like the ground troops or footmen or whatever. And yes. so this information, if you look at their sources, you know, their sources are coming from these activists, these, um, these anti-vaccine leaders. Um, and that's where it is. It's not the from grassroots activists who I do believe are sincere. I really do. And I think we have to come at them with that compassion. It's hard because when someone is so sincere and believes in a cause so strongly, mm -hmm. that comes across when they talk to their neighbors, their friends, mm -hmm. their families, mm -hmm. you know, like I've had a family member who, one of her family members who's not directly related to me is very anti-vaccine and um, I, like you said, she's very convinced and she's coming at it from a good place because she really believes that if she gets this information out to people, then you know, they'll avoid some sort of harm or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so this family member of mine called me up with all sorts of questions and, you know, not sure how to deal with her and all that. And, you know, it, it's tough because the, the sentiment that comes across is, no, I care about you. I care about your right. children. I don't want they you do. to get harmed. Mm -hmm. And it's very confusing to people to, to get in a conversation like that. And they're left with all sorts of like scary emotions as a mom, as a parent, like mm -hmm. you are so responsible for your child and you know god forbid who wants to do something that could harm their kid you know so it's a very vulnerable place to be when someone is coming at you with all this information right i think it's especially challenging for a number of reasons because you could say just talk to your pediatrician right i mean if it's talking about fear of say vaccinating children which most of the time when we talk about vaccines it's children and now the covid vaccine is being approved for younger ones and that's a hot topic right now is you know should i vaccinate my child my teen um, so the problem is that first of all, um, healthcare professionals today have less and less time, especially in pediatrics, which to be honest, is a really not highly reimbursed field and we get no money for vaccines. <laughs> I had a parent who said, I'm, I'm leaving because I don't want to vaccinate and you get so much money for the vaccines. And I'm like, I haven't seen a penny. Oh, so frustrating. Um, so we, we don't have, <laughs> it's true. We I don't know. It's, it must be very frustrating. You get all these accusations and go prove that it's not true. You know, like, oh, you're in the pocket of big pharma. No, I'm not. Okay. Like, you know. Right. And by the way, that also shows the lack of trust that they have in us from the get-go. So you want to have a trusted relationship. You really need time to build a trusted relationship. We don't have that. We have these obnoxious EMRs, electronic medical record that we now have to type everything into and requires us to spend our day filling in checkboxes instead of, you know, interacting with human beings. And I want, you know, that many physicians, you know, and healthcare professionals, including me, go home every single day and spend additional hours typing away that we do not get a single penny for so that we can spend more time interacting with the families, which is the essence of medicine. And by the way, someone has said, by the way, we're getting a discrepancy, a, a, um, a dichotomy where medicine is just science and then alternative medicine is heart. You need both. You need both, that's the problem. And so people are often forced to make a choice. And by the way, a lot of healing comes from someone caring about you holding your hand, listening to you. So this is a huge, huge issue that many very well-intentioned healthcare professionals face. And as a 
you know, at, we're both healthcare professionals, we both understand this, but I don't know how many people in the general community understand how frustrated we are. And that's where the passion comes in Joma and why we're willing to spend so many hours <laughs> because we went into this to help people, not to fill in little boxes in our electronic medical records. Oh, I feel you like so, so, so much. It's unbelievable <laughs> because I always say like, I love my job. I love what I do. I love interacting with patients. But all of these regulatory things mm-hmm. are preventing me from doing my job, right. which I love, but I don't love my job anymore because of all these silliness yeah. that we have, you know, like, the, for example, where I work, um, part of our productivity is measured by how many patients we can see in a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be very easy to accomplish if like, probably equal amount, if not more of my time is spent mm-hmm. at a computer Mm-hmm. as talking to a patient, I probably even more, probably even more, you know, I spend, you know, X amount of time speaking to a patient, finding out what's going on with them, etc. And then I run to my computer and put it mm-hmm. all into writing, because you have to document every single Everything. thing you talked about every single thing you plan to do every single thing you did every single lab value that came back. And it's like, the amount of time spent just interacting with my computer is at least equal to if not more than my time face to face with a patient. And, and then it's, you know, patients have rightful concerns and are indignant that we don't spend enough time with them. And I, I wish I could, I wish I had the freedom to do that. And I think it would absolutely help build trust. I think it's a huge, huge component for this sort of, you know, difficult doctor patient relationship that we're having now, unfortunately, the patients don't understand the, and they can't because they're not in that role. You know, why don't, why don't the, the, the healthcare team come in and talk to me more? Why don't they come in and give me my results the minute they come back? You know, why hasn't someone communicated this to me right away? Why have I had to wait an hour to see someone, you know, and it's extremely frustrating because I think the vast, vast, vast majority of people get into this field with very good intentions of wanting Mm -hmm. to help people. I don't think anyone's under any illusion that they're getting in this just for the money because it comes along with a lot of really hard work, you know? hundred percent. And, and then, this is why the burnout rate is so high. Oh yeah. And then you get back to someone comes in the room and they don't even trust you. And they come in with a ream of studies that they've taken off, off the internet. And what are you supposed to do? Right. Although I do have to say that another problem is that even if they had all the time in the world, many healthcare professionals are not, they do not know enough about, how to handle vaccine hesitancy, which is not the same thing to say they don't know enough about vaccines because the misinformation is a field in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the amount of scientific data that you would have to have at the tip of your fingers Mm -hmm. to debunk all these like random information that they come up with. And, you know, it's like, we know, we know enough and we've been taught enough to trust that the vaccines are safe and work, but you may not have all the right information to debunk every single claim that's going to be made. And, you know, it's, it's tough because then, then they'll get the idea. Well, you really don't know what you're talking about, you know? Right. Right. And they love to say doctors have had four hours of, you know, training in vaccines. Like they love to try to take away your trust in the doctors and healthcare professionals to begin with. Similar to the, you know, the trust in the vaccines to begin with. So it's a big problem, but we're, we're really trying, Ajoma, like we are really, really trying to, to help people be more empowered. I wanna say, clearly we are not pushing the vaccine. If we ever give the impression of pushing the vaccine, it is a um, unwarranted impression because what we're trying to do is empower people to have the information to make the right decision. It's hard though, because it's not just a matter of lack of information. It's not, right? Like you said, there's an emotional, huge emotional component. And what I'm finding is that for every person who really has specific concerns that derive from the anti-vaccine movement, and that doesn't mean they're an anti-vaxxer, right? Yeah, of course. It mean they're skeptical and they, they heard something and they'd wanna know what's true. Um, and that's a mistake people make is to say, oh, you must be an anti-vaxxer if you don't want the vaccine. Like they have a very black and white dichotomy. But for every one of those, there's 10 or more people who are just scared. Because someone said something and it, it's like infiltrated in our society, these fears of fertility and long-term effects. And that is really, really hard. Because like yeah. you said, you're just trying to unscare people. They don't have specific reasons. They don't have specific information that you can debunk. 
they're just afraid. Right. And, you know, I, I learned this from you, but I think it's worth mentioning for anybody, you know, who's listening um, and can relate to this, that there's, there's a lot of people that will come um, with information that sounds scary uh, and say something like, you know, did you know that the vaccine causes infertility, for example? So someone who hears that, let's say it's a family member of mine, might come to me and say, is this true? Right? Mm -hmm. I've learned from you that the response should really be, well, you need to show me a good source for that information rather than grabbing onto that information and going to someone else to disprove it, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's very important for people to know when someone comes to you and says something really scary about whatever it may be, a vaccine, a medication, a, a you know, and, but right now, you know, obviously the topic is COVID. Um, and the COVID vaccine. When someone comes and says something that sounds really scary, ask for a source, a legitimate source for that information, not just scary word of mouth, because if they can't provide you with a good source for that information, then why are you going to believe it? Right. I mean, I think that that applies more so to people who are really what's called just asking questions. They really have very firmly pre-existing beliefs that the vaccine is dangerous. They're not really asking and they're putting you on the defensive and they should be showing you the sources. But I think a lot of people have seen something and it may be something specific and they'll say, well, there's this doctor from Yale or there's this doctor from wherever, Mayo Clinic, to name two specific places, <laughs> um, two specific doctors. Um, it, it sounds super legit. And then those people, I would really try to find a good source to show them what's really going on and not put them back on the defensive because you're throwing them back to the wolves. Right, right. That's true. Yeah, there's a distinction between the types of people that say these things. Absolutely. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. So I know this is like a tremendous minefield I'm about to step in. Uh -oh. um, and I know this, this topic is, is not easily covered in two minutes or less. But um, very briefly, if you can, what would you um, what would you say to the parents who are now questioning um, the COVID vaccine? And by the way, there's an entire episode that Dr. Minkin did, um, which I highly, highly recommend people go listen to. But can you give some very brief basics of what your recommendation is? Uh, as a pediatrician to, to parents that are concerned about this possibly being mandated or just, you know, it's available now, my kids 12, 13, like, what do you think? Well, there is so much to unpack there. <laughs> I know, one. I'm sorry to do this to you. <laughs> number, number one, I wanna stay away from the word mandate because it's under the emergency use authorization. So it's not going to be mandated by public institutions. It may be required, and this is kind of an unfair, um, I don't want to be disingenuous and change the wording from mandated to required, but a private institution could require something like this, even if it's under emergency use authorization. Um, I strongly believe that it shouldn't be, especially in children. It's a new vaccine, and I do not think that it should be mandated for school, you know, for children. Um, colleges may, like again, private institutions, and I'm not going to weigh in on that. Um, but again, mandated means mandated for attendance at this particular place. Now I talked about this for Israel um, and even though the anti-vaccine group there are going on and on about green cards and you know mandates and so on and so forth, the physician that I interviewed um, said that it is not mandated for any necessary um, service like school. They don't mandate regular vaccines for school in Israel, which I did not know. Oh, that's interesting, I didn't know yeah. that. So it's more of like for travel for something like that. So this is a very, very, I really don't wanna go, that is a super landmine. And I like, personally, I'm for let's get good sources and let's give people as much autonomy as they can to make the best decision that they can. That's how I feel personally. I'm just gonna move on from that one. Okay. <laughs> good children. So the, we have a recent emergency use authorization specifically for the Pfizer vaccine for 12 to 15. It was approved for 16 and up. So we have tons of real world data on that group, which is very reassuring. There is a new fear of myocarditis, which is being talked about now. Um, I believe that we, they are still looking at it. We don't know exactly um, whether there could be an increased risk of it from the vaccine. 
it is suspected that there could be a slightly increased risk from the vaccine, but that it is uncommon. And we did see one case of it in our hospital recently. Uh, I think it was a 20 year old who just got the vaccine and had myocarditis. Just to clarify, myocarditis is an inflammatory condition of the heart. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, interesting. It did sort of correlate with the timing that he had the vaccine. So it's, it's come up a little. Was it after the first or the second? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Cause I think it's reported to primarily be after the second. Um, but very, very low incidence. And again, people hear this and it's very hard for them to not perceive it as a huge risk. It's very hard to put it in its place as being a very small risk from what we know. And we've vaccinated so many 16 and up and 16 year olds are not that different from the 12 to 15. It's not a world of difference. We're not talking about 16 versus six months here. We're talking about just a few years younger. So it's a passable signal. I mean, we've been monitoring so carefully. Also, I think we're looking for it now because we're being so transparent and because we're trying so hard not to miss something. I'm curious about whether that 20 year old was particularly sick with the myocarditis. Myocarditis has a spectrum, right? It sounds super scary, inflammation of the heart, but from one physician that I know, she was saying, hey, this is weird. This is not what I'm used to seeing. This person didn't have a rapid heart rate. They weren't working hard to breathe. We're like, how'd you pick it up? Well, they had chest pain. Chest pain is a super common complaint that rarely has an underlying abnormality in teenagers. Right. But now our antenna are up. We're looking for it. So from what I understand anecdotally, a lot of these cases are super mild. And that's reassuring that not only is this rare complication from what we can tell, we're looking for it with you know, microscope, micro, under the microscope. Um, and it appears to be mild for the most part. So it has to be put in that perspective. Um, but I understand for parents that it's hard for them to make this choice. It's scary for them because truthfully, kids do well on the average. Most kids do well from COVID and that has to be put in the risk benefit equation making. And I always say we're making risk benefit decisions with a lot of uncertainty. Uncertainty can be hard to deal with, but I think that these conversations should be had with your healthcare professional. I think we have to arm these healthcare professionals with, with good information, because I'm hearing, my pediatrician told me that my child shouldn't get the vaccine, right? Why would someone say that? I don't agree with that at all, but I definitely agree that we shouldn't be pushing it. We should be very gentle. We should be having conversations. I think it matters whether you're living with a high-risk relative whether you wanna visit grandma and grandpa a lot who even if they've been vaccinated um, are still at some risk because we know the older you get, um, the less robust immune response in general. I mean, it looks good from what we know so far that even the elderly seem to be mounting a good response to the COVID vaccine, but still they're, they're more at risk. And that's true when, when they had COVID in the past of getting reinfected, it's higher when you're older because your immune system is not as robust as you get older. So. They may want to go to, to a, school, a camp that requires it. You may want to travel. There's many reasons. And I think it's just an individual um, decision that should be made with your healthcare professional. Very good. That's some good information. Um, I think we're, I'm going to try to wrap this up with you because I know your time is super precious, but um, I, I know that because of uh, necessity, you've been super, super involved with COVID and the COVID vaccine. But aside from that, if you can remember a time before that, <laughs> what are some of your, your favorite topics to cover um, when it comes to health prevention? Oh, no. I mean, I'm still doing that too, believe it or not. I am working on scheduling a talk. Um, there's a new organization community something substance abuse CCSA. They've been in the news um, at TL and Leon Foreman. Have you heard of them? No. So actually my son-in-law um, is a rabbi and he had the RCA um, uh, meeting and they spoke there, RCA convention, I think. And they spoke there and he went to them and said, my mother-in-law does podcasts. <laughs> and we just got a request. Can you please do substance abuse? So um, I'm very passionate about mental health and related topics. That's great. It's such a need also to be covered in the community. Everybody knows someone who has something, but it's still such a taboo topic. So uh, it's awesome that you're giving that a lot of attention to. 
And back to COVID, unfortunately, we're seeing more of all of this stuff. Oh, for sure. Problem. So we always for go back sure. to COVID. Because- yeah. Well, now everything is a fallout of COVID oh. because COVID has just consumed every fiber of all of our beings for way too long, unfortunately. But yeah, 100%. I have seen that myself a lot too, the the mental health fallout and um I mean, hopefully it's not just the tip of the iceberg, but like, as we get back to normal, you know, hopefully kids, especially, but adults too. I mean, cause ultimately we're the, the decision makers and the responsible parties. And it's a lot to carry on, uh, you know, that burden, um, and all these different things, like you said, there's so much uncertainty. And then along with that comes so much responsibility that you just don't know what to do with. So it's so it, much it's a anxiety. Big, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big mental health burden. And I'm seeing mm-hmm. the fallout from that in the hospital too. It's a lot of anxiety related complaints, um, mm-hmm. things like that. But uh, your, your whole, you know, everything that you're doing is just really, really incredible. I, I love your podcast. And I just want to give it a huge shout out again. Um, people who are interested in various health topics, whether it affects you or someone you know, or just, it's great to have information um, because you never know when something might become an issue for you. And like Dr. Minkin said, so, so many times to have the information, uh, good information is so much better than, than having bad information than having to debunk it and knowledge is power. And, and there's so much great knowledge and information on your podcast. And you're, you're such an inspiration with how much time and energy you're devoting for the benefit of the community. You know, you're doing the the work of the claw and you know it's it's huge mitzvah on top of that so um i really want to thank you for your efforts and hopefully all of your work will go towards building a better healthier community you know i think that's amen. your goal amen and thank you so much for having me i just want to give a a email address if people listening to this have ideas of topics they want to hear <laughs> or feedback for um sure. health the word health, H-E-A-L-T-H at joma, J-O-W-M-A dot org. So we are happy to get feedback. We're happy to get ideas for um, future podcasts and webinars. Sure. And I'll post that link. And I think probably if anybody uh, is interested in being a guest with a topic, right, that would probably Mm -hmm. be be beneficial to you too. All right. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for devoting your time uh, from your super busy schedule. I'm really honored that you came on to do this conversation with me and best of luck in all the rest of your work. I can't wait to hear what you do next.